Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. I want to invite Pastor Peter up. And, uh, you know, we're wrapping up our series on marriage. And I think it's an important enough topic we could have gone for couple years on this topic and not exhausted all the things to say. Pastor Peter is um, writing a book on the subject, and so I thought he'd be a really great person to back clean up and bring this series to a close. Before um, I invite him to speak, I just want to say to all of you, if during the course of this series you've discovered that your own marriage is far from perfect, and whose isn't, but if it's really struggling, I want to exhort you not to struggle alone. You don't come to church to put on a good show. You come to church to find a community that helps you grow. And if you find that your marriage is not in great shape, don't dare walk alone in it. We're here for you. Reach out to somebody. Let us know that you need help. We don't have magic bullets or all the answers, but we will walk with you. And I want to really exhort you to take advantage of these people God surrounded you with. Uh, Pastor Peter serves as the associate pastor at our sister church, Emmanuel Community Church. I can't say down the street anymore. They're up in Wheeling now. And I have the joy of playing basketball with them and a bunch of other middle-aged, tired pastors every Monday morning. And it is one of the highlights of our week. I have gotten to respect him more playing basketball with them, seeing his tenacity and his hard work ethic. And I know that this is a topic very dear to his heart, so I will take up no more of his time. Uh, Let's welcome him with applause as he brings the word of God to us. Thank you. Is this a headset on? All right. I'm going to try this with a headset here. Thank you so much for having me. It's a a real honor and privilege uh, just to be here, but even more so to to close out this series on this very important topic of marriage. Unfortunately, my wife, Kim, uh, some of you I think know her, uh, she couldn't be here with us today. She serves as a children's ministry director over at Emmanuel. And uh, the picture, yeah, this is a picture of my family. This is a little bit dated, but as you can see uh, from the picture of my wife, she, I clearly married up. Would you agree? <laughs> and uh, I'd call her my better half, but I'm like twice her size, so I don't know. I think she's like my better one-third, if you want to be really accurate about it. So I spent nearly four years actually pursuing my wife. Some might call this persistence stalking. <laughs> but in my mind, if she ends up marrying you, It's not called stalking, it's called courtship, right? (laughs) So, as Pastor Dave mentioned, marriage is a topic that's very near and dear to my heart. When when PD asked me to come and wrap up this series, and I was happy to oblige. And I love talking about marriage, and it's not because I have the perfect marriage. Uh, My wife, she was here, she'd be a loud amen to that. (laughs) Nor am I an expert in marriage, but simply because I think it's impossible to talk about marriage and not talk about the gospel. You know, the two are so intertwined that they're inseparable. And I, and I love talking about the gospel. That's what we're all about. That's why we're here, isn't it? So what I'm going to share, I think, has incredible relevance, whether you're married or whether you're single and wanting to be married or whether you're single and not wanting to be married or whether you're married and not wanting to be married. 
I think this applies to everyone because it has very little to do with the institution of marriage itself, right? It has everything to do with you and Jesus and what he desires to share between you and himself, right? So about a year ago, my wife was teaching Sunday school in front of about 50 kids over at ICC, and I was helping her advance some of the slides on her computer. And so I'm sitting in the front of the room alongside her, and I'm sitting on this little kitty plastic chair, and all of a sudden, in the middle of the lesson, the, the chair that I'm sitting on literally just expl- explodes. <laughs> okay? And, I mean, it wasn't like one of the back legs started to bend slowly. It was like a roadside bomb. And there were, like, pieces of chair, chair shrapnel, like, flying all over the room. And I'm lying on the ground, and I'm looking up. And all these little kids are, like, looking at me, laughing and pointing. And I, I had this Elisha moment. I wanted to pray for some mama bears to, like, vindicate me. But I restrained myself for the grace of God. But... You know, looking back, I realized it's so foolish to think that this little chair of molded plastic could support, you know, all of this, right? I had faith that this little plastic chair was going to hold me, and I was very disappointed by that little plastic chair. And I share this because all of us are looking for love. You know, this is the universal cry of the human heart. And as Blaise Pascal puts it, we all have this God-shaped hole in our hearts that's longing to be filled. And if you believe that you can find someone to fill that hole in your heart apart from God, guess what? You're sitting on a little plastic chair, right? There's no one on earth that can carry that weight. No one can bear that burden. Not your parents, not your friends, not your children, not your spouse, not your soulmates. The only one who can bear that burden is the one who created your soul, who loves your soul, who came to save your soul. And I'm convinced that God wants us to know this, and he even created marriage for that very purpose. You know, we sing this song. I love that song. I couldn't remember the lyrics, but the kids' song when they came up, and the chorus went something like, Jesus loves me, and no one can love me more. And, man, that really spoke to me. Such a simple song, and yet, it reminded me of this song, Jesus loves me, this I know why, for the Bible tells me so, right? The Bible is what tells us of Jesus' love. And I believe not just the Bible, but marriage even itself is a declaration of God's love for us. You know, my kids have kind of grown out of children's Bibles. They're um, 13, 11, and 8 now. But if there's one children's Bible that you know, I can recommend without hesitation, it's, it's this one. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. It's written by Sally Lloyd-Jones. And we've read this to our kids cover to cover at least 10 times. It's, and if you have young kids I, and you don't have it, I recommend, highly recommend go out and get it. Even if you don't have kids, I recommend you go out, buy it, read it for your own edification. And I want to just read an excerpt from the opening chapter of this book because I, I feel like the author, she explains the heart of God and the purpose of his war far better than I can. So I just want to read this. This is, God wrote, I love you. He wrote it in the sky and on the earth, and under the sea. He wrote his message everywhere. Because God created everything in his world to reflect him like a mirror. To show us that he, what he is like. To help us to know him. To make our hearts sing. The way a kitten chases her tail. The way red poppies grow wild. The way a dolphin swims. 
And God put it into words and wrote it in a book called the Bible. Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times, they're downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's, the most, it's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. Amen. Uh, you know, the great church reformer Martin Luther said, God writes the gospel, not in the Bible alone, but on trees and clouds, stars. What is Luther saying? I think he's saying that God does not just go to the ends of the earth to convey his love to his beloved, but throughout all of the earth, God has embedded his message of love within creation itself. In other words, for God so loved the world, that he created a world to tell the world how much he loves them. And that's startling. That's startling to me. And it isn't just limited to nature, you know, such as trees and clouds and stars. I think it applies to all of his creation, especially marriage, one of God's greatest creations. And so when God was looking for a metaphor, a picture, something to express his love for his people, he didn't just say, hmm, let me think about this. Oh, marriage, that would be a great example. That would be a great picture. No, he created marriage for that very purpose, you see. And so let's turn to Ephesians 5, 31, 32. Um, Before I read this verse, um, a little context. I know Pastor Dave spoke on this passage a few weeks back, and I just want to refresh your memory. You know, the Apostle Paul here in Ephesians has just given some very practical instructions to both men and women in the church and even the church at large, and he's saying, look, husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loves the church. And then he instructs the wives to what? Submit to your husbands. How? As the church submits to Christ. So Paul begins this section by explaining the how of marriage, and now he's about to close it out by explaining the why of marriage. Isn't that what we all want to know? Like, why? Why are we doing this? Why are we called to do this? The how demonstrates the model, but the why empowers the motivation. And if you're going to memorize one verse on marriage, let it be this one. I think this is the linchpin verse of the New Testament on marriage because Paul ties everything together 
with this massive truth bomb in this verse, in these two verses. And it's like he's concluding this statement on marriage, and he's about to drop the mic. And he says, listen, listen. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. Now, I don't know if anyone's like, well, where did Paul drop the mic there? I missed it, right? I mean, what does this mean? Well, in the first half of this verse, you have to remember, Paul is actually quoting from Genesis chapter 2 when he says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and become one flesh. And this is important because if you want to understand God's original purpose for marriage, you first have to examine God's original design. One man, one moon, one flesh. And then Paul refers to the marriage union as a mystery. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about this word mystery, I immediately think of like CSI, Sherlock Holmes. I used to read The Three Investigators growing up, Encyclopedia Brown. And it makes me think about something that's difficult to solve, right? Or hard to comprehend. Something that you need great knowledge to understand. But this is an unfortunate translation of the word mystery here because, in my opinion, there's really no English word that does justice to the word mystery in the original Greek here. I think a, a closer translation would be revelation. This revelation is profound. It's a revealing. And we know this because every time Paul uses the word mystery in Ephesians, and in fact all of his letters, it's very clear that he's talking about something that was once hidden, concealed in the past, but is now being revealed. It's now been revealed. The curtain has been lifted. God has lifted it with the sending of his son, Jesus. So in other words, this is not something that God intended to be hard to solve or difficult to understand. You don't need Sherlock Holmes or anyone else to solve this. It's In fact, since Christ arrived, it's the exact opposite. What God is saying is, I want you to know this. I want the world to know. It's a revealing. It's a revelation. And this is huge. And we know it's huge because what? Paul tells us it's huge. The word profound here in the Greek is megas, which is huge. And Paul is saying, listen, listen, guys, look, this is huge. This is big. You don't want to miss this. Well, what is it that we can't miss? What is it that Paul wants to, to open our eyes to? And it's the unveiling of the purpose of marriage, the ultimate purpose. And Paul tells us that this purpose is to be a living picture of Christ and the church. Christ and the church. Now, that sounds nice, right? That sounds very theological. It sounds like straight out of the Westminster Catechism. But what does that mean when God says, Marriage is to be a picture of Christ in the church. I think what it means is that the most supreme love relationship on earth was designed to point us to the greatest love relationship from heaven. You see, husband and wife was to point us to Christ and the church, or at its very root level of Christ in the church is Jesus and me, right? As a believer, as someone of faith. Do you follow? And so the earthly marriage was created by God to point us towards the divine union. 
And this is huge, and so many of us miss this because we've reduced marriage to nothing more than being about me and my happiness. And God designed marriage to tell us a story. And in, his mar- in the marriage, he wants us, if you do it his way, to be telling his story as well, to his glory. And so God created marriage to reveal to the world his great love for his beloved. You know, we look at the signals from male and female. I think it's so easy to just think, well, you know, God created male and female, separate identities. And yet, I think if you just move some things around, you realize, no, it's really to point us to a picture of Christ and our union with him. And so, God wants to reveal to the world his great love for his beloved. In other words, the earthly marriage between a husband and wife was designed by God to point to something far greater, his relationship with me, Christ and me, the divine union. And so if God designed the earthly marriage to be a picture of the divine union, then I think it would stand to reason that, you know, there should be some meaningful parallels, right, between the relationship between a husband and wife, the earthly marriage, and the divine union, right, Jesus and the church, his bride. And so there should be aspects of that that remind us of that. And in the same way, there should be aspects of the divine union, Jesus, his relationship with the church, that should inform and instruct and inspire us in marriage, right? How we do marriage on earth. So I want to unpack some of this because if you're married, I want to go back to the very first day of marriage, right? Your wedding day. And I want us to think about what what was the most important part of that day, that wedding day? You know, we spend so much time fretting over flowers, the bridal party, the dinner menu, the first dance. The list is, is endless, But if you really think about it, the entire wedding ceremony and ultimately the marriage union is built on one thing. It's built on the marriage vows. This is the foundation of every marriage. And if you were to remove this, you really don't have a wedding, right? You take the vows, exchange of vows out of a wedding ceremony, and you really don't have a wedding at all. And, you know, I, I... if you go on vows.com or any other vows, I think you've heard like traditional vows. You know, it goes something like this. It goes, I take you to be my lawful husband or wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. Right? It's become almost a cliche now. And I know not every marriage vow is the same. You know, many are so different. Uh, you know, Kim and I, we wrote our own vows. We kind of did all the other planning. We scrambled like two nights before and tried to write our own vows. But what almost all vows, I think, share in common is it's a long list of circumstances in which both parties are promising to be faithful to one another, come what may. Right? So the purpose of the wedding ceremony is not for the groom and the bride to proclaim their love right, for one another, but rather it's to publicly promise their love to one another. Right? This is very different from like a baptism where you're professing your faith. There's no profession really going on. We all know you love each other. That's why you're here. You're here to proclaim a promise before all these men, all these women, all these witnesses, before God himself. That is the purpose of a wedding ceremony. And because these vows are promises that are made for an unknown future, what is required to receive them? It's faith. Right? You need faith. Because the wedding vows are predicated on faith. 
they place trust in a promise that's yet to be fulfilled. So when someone makes these promises, the other has to choose to accept that promise by faith, right? So when you, for those who are married, if you stand, when you stood before your husband or your wife, honestly, I don't know. I've been married for 15 years, and I didn't know if my wife was going to be faithful to that promise, to those vows. I had to receive that by faith, just, and she had to do the same. And I think even the world recognizes that faith is at the very center of the marriage vow, because it uses words such as unfaithfulness, infidelity, when someone breaks their vows, right? So what can we learn here about God's love through his creation of marriage? I think God wants us to know that his love <clears throat> is received by faith. Just as my wife and I enter into a marriage union by faith and a promise, the same holds true in my union with Christ. And the only way that I can enter into a relationship with Jesus is by faith. It's by faith. I have to believe that he loves me. I have to believe that he gave himself up for me and that he's coming back for me. This is true of the earthly marriage. This is especially true of the divine union. And this truth, I think, is under constant attack. Well, does God really love you? Something bad happens in your life? Something tragic? Something unforeseen? I don't know. I don't know, God. Do you really love me? This is the truth that was attacked in the Garden of Eden. Does God really love you, Adam? Does God really love you, Eve? I think he's holding out on you. See, they didn't believe. They didn't have the faith. And so that is what is constantly under attack is the promise of God's love. But these vows are so important. Because every couple will encounter their share of difficult seasons. And no matter how strong your feelings of love are on that wedding day, feelings in and of themselves, they don't have the power to bind your marriage together for life. It's the vows that secure it, that bind it together. You know, I um, hate to admit this, but one of my wife's and I's guilty pleasures is watching The Bachelor and The Bachelorette and... um, we caught like the last season and kind of been watching this latest one, The Bachelorette. And, you know, when I see that, to me, it's just such a, it's like a train wreck, okay? I mean, there's nothing realistic about this reality show. And yet, you just watch it and you start to feel sorry for people. And yet, you know, you listen to some of these people talking, they're like, they go on these dates, they meet these people, you know, in these exotic locations, and they have this one-on-one time or one-on-one date. And, and then, you know, they're expressing, you know, their, 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 these feelings they're having for this person. They're like, ah, you just make me so happy. You make me so happy. And that's what love has become in our culture today, right? It's, it's, it's reduced to nothing more than just a feeling. And so what you're really saying is, I, I want to marry you because you make me feel a certain way. You bring joy to my life, right? And so as soon as that feeling goes away, usually the marriage goes with it in our world because it's really... Our love, our covenant, nothing, our marriage is not based on anything more than just a feeling. You know, a few years ago, I found um, this uh, file on my computer, and it contained our original wedding program. And I didn't think much of the title, you know, when we got married, when we put this together. But I came across it years later, and it really reminded me and struck me because the program was entitled The Covenant of Marriage, Uniting Kim and Peter Cho. And... It struck me because I realized at that time that 
God's desire for us to understand is that marriage vows are essentially a covenant, aren't they? And they're to remind us of God's covenant and the covenant he desires to share with us. And so here's my first point is I believe God created marriage to be an expression of his love, which is bound by a covenant and it's received by faith. God's love is bound by a covenant which is received by faith. And one of the first things you'll notice when you read through the Bible is that God is a God of covenants. He loves making promises. He loves keeping his promises. And in fact, this is the primary way in which God chooses to relate to his people. And you see this repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. However, all of the covenants in the Old Testament are dwarfed by this new and better one that is promised to come in the New Testament. And the prophet Jeremiah tells us this in Jeremiah 31, 31. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. See, it's no accident that you see this kind of marriage language all throughout the Old Testament when God refers to his relationship with his people. His desire is for his people to enter into a covenant relationship with him. And when we get to the New Testament and into Romans, after Jesus has arrived, we get to some really remarkable promises. Right? Romans chapter 8 it reads, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, when I read this a few years ago, it kind of hit me like right between the eyes. It's like for the first time I was reading through this verse, and I realized, man, this totally reads like a traditional wedding vow, doesn't it? It's a promise to love faithfully through a myriad of circumstances, good and bad. But notice something here. It says, this covenant transcends the covenant that we find even in marriage, in the earthly marriage. Because it promises a love that goes beyond the physical, beyond the metaphysical, outside of time, and even beyond death itself. This is the promise of God. What an amazing promise. And so, secondly, God's love is bound by a covenant which secures an unconditional love. God wants us to know that he loves us unconditionally, and I believe part of the reason why he created marriage was to express that very purpose. He loves us. He desires to be in covenant relationship with us. It is received by faith, and his love is unconditional. And I think his desire is that we picture that same type of love, in our own marriages, to his glory. You know, a couple months ago in April, Kim and I, we celebrated our 15th anniversary, and I was, you know, reflecting upon the last decade and a half together. And we've gone through lots of ups and downs. Uh, Four years ago, I I know some of you know this, my my wife was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer lymphoma. And uh, a few years ago, I went through a season, like six months, just really bad depression. I've never experienced anything like that before in my life. And I was incapacitated. And Kim says, even to this day, like, man, that was harder than cancer. And we've had, you know, the joy of, of birthing three beautiful children. We've had the heartache of losing a child 
to miscarriage, and so much more. And it made me realize these last 15 years, you know, our marriage has been tested. But it's persevered through all these different conditions. And it just dawned on me that God had given me a glimpse of what it means to have unconditional love for another person. And what it means to receive unconditional love from another person. And it's because our promise to one another requires enduring all conditions that our love is sustained, good or bad, high or low, up or down. And that is a small glimpse, I think, of the love of God, unconditional. doesn't matter the conditions. He will love you. This is his promise. And in Jeremiah 31.3, God says to his people, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. You see, how do you prove that your love is everlasting? You prove it in your faithfulness. Right? And so marriage, in marriage, God provides a picture of his everlasting love because marriage is making the promise that this love will endure. It will last. It will continue until the end. It is faithful. And the world they, wants to marginalize love, wants to marginalize marriage, But even the greatest philosophical minds of our day say, if you like it, then you should have put a ring on it, right? If you like it, then you should have put a ring on it. Meaning, look, if you truly love me, prove it. Prove that you have a love that's everlasting, that will be faithful until the end. And so that brings me to my last point here, that God's love is bound by a covenant which creates an inseparable union. God's love is bound by covenant, which creates an inseparable union. As I mentioned earlier, from the very beginning, God presents marriage as two becoming one, right? In other words, marriage is not just a legal arrangement. It's a deeply spiritual union. And how do we know this? Well, you know, marriage is a very hot topic in today's culture. It's a lightning rod, you know, I think today, but just as hot as a debate as it is today, I think it was the same thing in Jesus' day. And in Matthew chapter 19, we see Jesus, he's being confronted by the Pharisees on the topic of marriage and divorce. And so they come up to him and they ask him this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And they know what the biblical answer is, right? The answer is no. But they also know the popular answer, and that's yes. And they're trying to trap Jesus in between the two, right? And Jesus' response, I think, is so instructive. He refers back to the very first marriage. Apparently, this is where Paul gets his cue in Ephesians, right? And he says, haven't you read that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female? And he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So Jesus himself is quoting Genesis chapter 2 here. And then he adds this postscript. He says, Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. What God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, if you've attended any weddings, I think you'll recall that, you know, oftentimes one of the last phrases that a minister will say is before he pronounces this couple as husband and wife, is, I now 
let what God has joined together, let no one separate this verse. But what was Jesus saying? What, what, what does he mean here? You see, the moment a bride and groom enter into a marriage covenant, I believe something very profound happens. By virtue of those covenant promises, I believe that the author of marriage, God himself, Jesus, is combining two into one. There's a spiritual union here. God who is spirit is, making, is creating a spiritual union. And that might seem strange. You know, you think, why would God involve himself with the marriage union of those who don't even know him? But you've got to remember, God is the author of marriage. And if he had a very specific purpose for marriage, the fact that he would involve himself in each and every marriage shouldn't surprise us, right? So regardless of your race or your religion or your reputation, when two people come together, there's a spiritual union that is happening to them right then and there. And what he's saying is, you and I share that same spiritual union. As a husband and wife come together and become one, when you enter into a covenant with me by faith, we share spiritual union. We are united. And when you begin to see marriage in light of this divine relationship, you begin to realize why divorce is such a big deal to God. Why he's so against it. You know, it's not just, hey, you got to be true to your word. Come on. You sign the contract. Live up to it. No, it's so much bigger than that. You see, the gospel is all over the picture of marriage. And when we move forward with the divorce, what are we saying? What are we saying about the gospel itself? What are we telling ourselves and watching with everyone that was at our wedding day? That a union that God himself has joined together can, in fact, be separated when it cannot. It cannot. This is what Romans 8 tells. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. And I think, conversely, God wants us to be faithful to our vows because he wants us to know that he will always, always be faithful to his. You see, under his covenant, nothing, nothing can separate us from his love. This is his faithful promise to us. A love so great that God in Christ would condescend to become a man, enter time and space, present himself as the bridegroom, and reconcile us to himself by bearing our punishment on the cross. This is a remarkable exchange when I enter into a covenant relationship with Jesus. See, I receive a new life, a new name. He assumes my debts. I assume his inheritance. Both my identity and my destiny are forever changed. And just as the spouse receives their marriage vows by faith, the only way to enter into this covenant is by faith. By faith. You know, uh, you've gone through this series now. I'm sure you've heard a lot of great instruction. Well, I know you have. I've listened to some of these sermons um, from your pastors. And, you know, it's so easy, I think, to walk away from a marriage series and think, oh, okay, now I know what I have to do. And you try this and you try that, and yet, really, no new results. Nothing changes. And so what I want to get to the heart of here is the reason why I want to explain this theology of marriage, the mystery of marriage, is because until we change the way we think, we will not change the way we act, right? Our behavior is driven by our beliefs. And so what I wanted to do is, is to call upon the gospel to be your impetus for change, to be your motivation to do what in your flesh you do not want to do. Because this is the pattern of the entire New Testament, if you think about it. Every time that God calls us to do something, it's never conditioned upon the other person. 
Instead, he tells us to direct our eyes to Jesus, to the gospel. Let that be your motivation. Let that inspire you to do what I'm calling you to do. And so in Ephesians 4.32, it says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why? Because as God in Christ forgave you. Where can you find the power to forgive a spouse, a friend, anyone who doesn't deserve your forgiveness, who's not even seeking your forgiveness? Only if you first realize that in Christ, God forgave you. And in the same way, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us, gave himself up for us. So what's your motivation to love your husband? What's your motivation to love your wife? Because they're lovable? Trust me, none of us are lovable every day of our lives. No, because Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus who endured the cross, Hebrews 12 tells us. How do we endure in this marriage? How do we persevere? Because we look to Jesus who endured. We look to Jesus who persevered. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but what? You look to Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. How do you find the power to serve your spouse? You can only find that power in the gospel. Only in Jesus. You know, um, my son Timothy, when he was six years old, I remember watching him try to do a jigsaw puzzle in his room by himself. And he was making pretty good progress, you know, working in the perimeter, like everyone says, you know, work the edges. It's very easy. And then he got kind of stuck, right? I mean, there's a gaping hole in the middle of this big puzzle. And he was like, ah, oh, so hard. I don't, you know, and he was ready to quit. He's complaining. And like any good father, I was just laying on his bed watching him struggle. And I said, Tim, go get the box. Just look at the box. And so he's like, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. And finally I convinced him to go get the box. And he sets the box in front of him. And all of a sudden, he gets going again, piece by piece. Looks at the puzzle, looks at the box, looks at the box, looks at the puzzle. And all begins to come together. I'm not saying it was easy for him. It was still a challenge. But what was a source of frustration became a source of joy, a pleasure. He began to see progress, and he finished it. And when it was done, what we saw in the puzzle was an exact replica of, of the box. And it just hit me, man, marriage is so much like that. Marriage is the puzzle. It can be a very frustrating puzzle at times, especially if you don't have the box. But God has given us the box. And he's saying, look at the box. Look at the finished product. This is what you're aiming for. This is your goal. This is the direction you want to head. And what becomes a source of frustration can become a source of joy. I'm not saying it's not going to be hard work, but I'm saying you will see progress only if you keep fixing your eyes on that box, going back, looking at him, going back down, looking at the box. And so the gospel is that box. Jesus is the picture. And I want to close out just with a few words for each of these. Look, I don't, I'm not going to assume that everyone here is married. I already know that that's not the case. And whether you're divorced or separated, I'm not here to lay a guilt trip on you. I'm not here to make you feel bad or cast judgment. That's not my goal or intention. 
there are biblical reasons for divorce. But I also want to encourage you that the truth is, no matter what kind of rejection you've experienced in your marriage or in divorce, God is faithful. God is faithful even if your spouse is not. And I know that the great pain of divorce, I mean, it's it, the carnage it leaves behind. And there's nothing harder except than the rejection of a person who knows you so well. Right? I mean, to be rejected flat out by someone who knows you better than anyone else in the world, think of how painful that is. And yet I want to remind you that the gospel truth is no one knows you better than God himself. And yet no one loves you more unconditionally. Now, for those of you who are single and yet long to be married, my heart goes out to you. I want to encourage you with the promise that everything that God has created marriage to be can be found in Jesus Christ and more. Because that is what marriage was designed to point us to in the first place. So just as married couples are to glorify God in their marriage, glorify God in your singlehood. In the end, it's not about me and my personal happiness. It's about the glory of God. And this is why the Apostle Paul, the same guy who wrote Ephesians 5 and is expounding upon the glory of marriage, also says, look, I prefer you guys not to get married. Why? Because in the end, you can do more for God and bring him greater glory as a single person than as a married person. And this is not a contradiction. Paul's not schizophrenic. He's just saying, look, the overarching principle here is not marriage or you or me. It's about God and it's about his glory. You can do that as a married person. You can do that as a single person. You can do that as a divorcee. You can do that as anyone that is in a covenant relationship with God. Now, lastly, there are some of you in the room who are married, but you're on the brink of divorce. I'm not going to assume that every marriage is going well here. Right? My own marriage, I've got a lot of ups and downs. Some of you may be really struggling with the idea of continuing in your marriage or has a spouse that's really struggling with continuing. And I want to both challenge and encourage you. God created marriage to be a sacred covenant because he wanted it to picture Jesus' faithfulness in his covenant to you. So when you're faithful in your marriage covenant to your spouse, you're being faithful in projecting God's covenant to your spouse, to your children, to a watching world. And I've seen marriages where this one spouse, you know, they had every biblical right to walk away from the marriage, but they chose not to. What an amazing testimony and picture of the unconditional love of God and the covenant we share with him. I'm going to close with one last story here. Um, as I shared earlier, <clears throat> about four years ago, my wife was diagnosed with stage 4 lymphoma, and she um, started to have some stomach pains, and we thought she had an ulcer. And so I remember very clearly taking her to the ER late on a Friday night, and Saturday they started doing some tests. Um, and by Sunday morning, they were operating. And if you're a doctor, you know, like, you don't operate on a Sunday morning unless something's really wrong. And um, she, she was in the ICU, and she had major surgery because even though she had a three-inch tumor in her chest, um, she had all this pericardial fluid built up around her heart. And it was, the, the, honestly, the doctors weren't even concerned about the cancer at that point. They were worried about her heart failing because there was so much pressure pushing up against her heart with all this fluid buildup. So they were trying to relieve the pressure. 
And things were really touch and go. And I remember that Sunday, I was like, what is going on? I mean, Friday, we were in small group. And right after small group, we go to the, you know, we go to the hospital. And, then, and by Sunday, like, I'm about to lose my wife. And I remember after the surgery, she's recovering Sunday afternoon. And I, I had the first chance of that opportunity that weekend to go back home and just tuck my kids in that evening. And I remember very clearly, like, I just put them down. I was getting ready to go back to the hospital. I get a phone call. And it's a nurse from the hospital in the ICU. And she's crying. And I don't know what's going on. I mean, that's like the last thing you want to hear, right? And she's saying, look, you got to get here now. Your wife needs you. And um, <clears throat> I, I got in my car, and I just rushed over there. And I remember on this drive, I'm just thinking, like, what's going on? You know, and all these thoughts start racing through your mind. You, you're just not prepared for a moment like that, you know. And I remember halfway to the hospital, it just kind of dawned on me, like, look, this could be the last, this could be it, right? And I remember thinking, what, if this is it, what am I going to say? You know, what could I say to my wife? What could, what could my last words to her be? And I remember just really being overcome with anxiety, overwhelmed with um, just being so overwhelmed with this thought of what, I have no idea what I'm going to say to my wife. I love you just didn't seem like enough. And I remember praying to the Lord just down that moment, just saying, Lord, just give me the words. If it comes to this, just give me the words. And I remember, you know, he gave me three words. It wasn't, I love you. It wasn't, you complete me. (laughs) It was just so simple. It was, run to Jesus. And, you know, praise God, she's in remission now. She didn't have to run to Jesus that night. (laughs) But I remember so clearly the Lord just gave me those words. And I remember, you know, I was thinking about these things, about marriage and the gospel, and, and the Lord just, in his goodness, just gave me that word. And I remember thinking, you know, where did that come from? And I began to realize, you know, my wife doesn't really belong to me, does she? That Jesus loved her far more than I can love her. And he, she belonged to him long before she belonged to me. And for all of us, we're just stewards in our marriages, right? And we have an opportunity in the years that we have together. Nothing's promised. Trust me, you can go from a Friday and a Sunday, and it could all be over. Nothing's promised to you. And yet, in that time, God has given you the privilege and the opportunity and the stewardship to love that person, to reflect Christ, to picture the gospel. And he is not asking us to do anything that he himself hasn't done already. And he's given us the power to do it in the gospel. And so, this is why Jesus tells us, look, there's no more marriage in heaven. Right? At least as we know it. Why? Because those that are under his covenant will be united with the great bridegroom. And everything that the earthly marriage was designed to point to will find its ultimate fulfillment in the divine union when we see Jesus face to face. Everything that 
our hearts have believed, our eyes will then see. Two will become one. Not just in a spiritual sense, but in a very physical sense. We will be united with Jesus. We will see him face to face. And I want to invite the worship team up as we close out here in time of prayer. I just want to spend a few moments reflecting on this revelation that Paul says is so huge he didn't want anyone to miss it. You know, marriage is hard. I'm not going to lie to you. Marriage is very hard. But I think that is the great wisdom of God. I think God intentionally did not make marriage easy because I believe he not only created marriage to be a picture of his love for us, but he also made it so difficult that every day of marriage we come face to face with the reality, right, that we are in desperate need of the gospel of grace. Who better than our spouse can tell us, uh, you're not perfect, you need grace. So marriage not only tells us what and who we need, it also shows us how much we need it. You understand? And so when you hit a bump in the road in your marriage, a difficult season, when you want to call it quits, just know that that's okay. That's part of marriage. That's part of revealing your need for the gospel of grace. And so don't look to that person to fulfill that hole in your heart. Look to the Lord. He's the only one who could do it. Don't look at other people's marriages. Look at Jesus and his bride. Look at the gospel as not just your model, but your motivation. This is the message of marriage. God is telling us a story through marriage, and he wants us to hear it. It's about his great love for us. God wants to tell that same story through your marriage to his glory. So he wants you to honor your covenant just as he honors his. So let's just sit in a moment, bow our heads in reflection. The Lord has spoken to you. The Spirit is moving in your heart. Let's pray that these truths would not go stay in the the realm of your mind, but it would work its way into your heart, to your hands and feet. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.